Good morning. You all may have a seat. My name is uh, Brian Harris, and I am an Air Force chaplain at Vandenberg Space Force Base. I'm right down the road, and I have the honor to preach to you guys this morning, so I'm excited for this. Um, I appreciate it, you guys. Thank you. Now, uh, if, if you wonder, I don't know if you guys remember any of the story from last time I was here. I know that was a bit ago, but the, the way it kind of works and kind of my connection with you all is in order to be a chaplain in the military, you have to have an, like an endorsing body, right? And so I was a minister in the Christian churches uh, for roughly 18 years prior to becoming an Air Force chaplain. And so my endorsing body is the Christian churches, churches of Christ. So I'm, I'm actually like y'all's representative in the Air Force. Um, and so... Uh, so it's kind of an exciting thing, right? It's, it's, and so I have the pleasure of coming, and I'd love to come here more often. Uh, what stops me from doing that is I'm, I'm doing the bulk of the preaching at the chapel at Vandenberg. Uh, and so I'm just tied up there doing this on Sunday morning, which is fine. I like preaching there too, you know, I like preaching as often as I have the opportunity. Uh, so this morning we're going to be in Romans 8. Uh, this is an exciting text. Um, if you don't know, uh, the Romans 8 is, is, you know, and it's up for debate, I guess, but, but not really. I mean, it's probably the best chapter in the Bible, right? I mean, realistically, if you read through it, you're like, wow, this is, this is great stuff. It's probably the best chapter in the entirety of the Bible. Um, you, I mean, you obviously read it yourself again, and you could disagree with me. I'm okay with that too. But it's just some really interesting stuff there. Um, and so before we, we dig in, I'm going to have you guys stand as we read the word. Um, and then I'll open up in, in prayer again, and then we'll get, we'll dive into this, the text. All right. So Romans eight, and we're in verse 12 through 17. It says, uh, I'm going through the ESV version. It says, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Uh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray. My God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the truths uh, that come in it. And we ask my Father that we could better understand it um, as, as we go through this. And hopefully my Father be transformed more into your image as we understand the text. And, and more so be more encouraged to serve in your body. We thank you, my God, that we can be your sons and daughters. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You all may have a seat. I appreciate it. Right, we start off, and I'm using the ESV version for a reason. Some of you, you know, it says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. Some translations use the word, uh, some of us, we have an obligation. And I like the word debtors because I think it paints like a more a greater imagery for at least some of the point I'm trying to, uh, to portray. Um, when my wife and I graduated from, from uh, college and seminary, you know, we had a lot of debt, and man, that is a blast, right? Debt is so, so much fun. And, uh, and, and with that debt comes like this feeling, this burden, right? It just like doesn't, like I'm out, I'm, I'm up, up late at night trying to find ways to pay it off quicker. You know, I'm, I'm seeing and it's like, man, this is so large. How is it even possible to ever get from underneath it? And, like, and you know, maybe I should have felt like gratitude that they would give me money to go to college. Maybe I should have. Right, But it was like, if I would have denied the loans that one bank gave me, another bank would have sent me an email the next day. 
I would have got 10 more letters in the mailbox, right? In the, in the United States, it just seems to be the case, right? There's just people wanting to give us money to go to college. Um, it's just the way it is. Now, it might be 28% interest, but they're wanting to give you the money. And so, and so I didn't feel the burden, right? I, I, like, I didn't feel gratitude or grateful to pay them back. I, maybe I should have, but I just didn't. It felt like a burden to me. Have all this amount of debt. Right? There's a difference between being in debt and having feelings of indebtedness. Right? When I was in, in seminary working on the, my Masters of Divinity, uh, grammar is not my thing. I'm not so good at it. Um, if you can't tell that by the way I speak, you also are not good at grammar. Uh, and so, um, and so that, that's where we are, right? So I'm really bad, and I would write these papers, and I would do all this work uh, for seminary. And if, if you are familiar with how the program works, like every class, you have like a 20 to 25 page paper due, um, roughly 25 classes like that. Um, and then on top of that, you have all these like 5, 10, 15 page papers due also in each class. So I mean, it's like through my seminary career, I wrote over 500 pages of papers, right? Not exciting. And a lot of that matters on how you communicate it, meaning proper grammar. So I've got a friend of mine who happened to get a perfect score on the SAT, he had a full ride to Duke University, very, very intelligent. Um, and he asked him, I was like, hey, Stuart, man, look, look, we're all different parts of the body, and this is not mine. Grammar part is not mine. Um, do you mind? And he said, no, man, I, I would, it would, you know, it'd be my honor to do this for you. Like, I know, I know you love the Lord, and I know that grammar is just going to be a burden for you, so you send your papers to me, and I'll prove freedom, and I'll grammar check them for you. He did that with every single paper. He will never pay for a meal if we are in the same city, right? And it is not because like I feel this burden to him. It's because I am just so grateful that he would read all this stuff I wrote just so that I could also have this degree and serve in this ministry. And I feel, I feel, I have these feelings of indebtedness towards him. My wife's not here with me this morning. And uh, part of the reason that is, is Monday morning she, or Monday evening, she had really bad abdominal pain. And we, we rushed her off to the emergency room. Um, pretty serious situation. But in the process around 11 o'clock at night, when we realized we have to do that, uh, I called my boss. His name's Chaplain Lawson. I was like, Chaplain Lawson, I got I to gotta rush my wife off to the emergency room. And um, I need help with the kids. The three kids are asleep. I just need somebody to stay in the house and me not go to prison for leaving my kids in the house by themselves, right? And uh, so he rushes over. He watches the kids. We'd, we'd run down to the hospital. She ends up needing like an emergency surgery. Um, and so in the process of me like trying to navigate how to deal, raise, keep my three kids alive, fed, everything, diaper change and all that, and tend to her, um, the, the, the community at the Vandenberg Chapel just like took my kids in. They rotated them around family to family. They fed them. They changed their diapers. They, you know, let them play. They kept them safe. They just, I mean, it was like, I didn't even have to ask anybody for anything. They just, they just did it. And then immediately, uh, Chaplain Lawson's wife, she got a meal train set up. And so like, before we can get back home from the hospital, they were already dropping meals off for us. And it was like, I don't feel a burden to them at all, but I feel like these feelings of gratitude and gratefulness and indebtedness that they would just bring our family in in this very impromptu and emergency situation. I mean, there is a difference between being indebted and having feelings of indebtedness. We are indebted, not to the flesh. We are indebted 
There's this uh, movie called The Counts of Monte Cristo. Have you guys ever seen that? It's like one of my favorite top 10 movies. It's so good. So much stuff there. Love, betrayal, action, right? I mean, it's just so much. In prison, war, revenge, so much stuff. But there's a scene in the movie where Edmund Dantes escapes from this prison. He like swims across this channel of water. He gets over onto the land and he's lying up on the beach and there is like this swarm of pirates there. And they're like, well, we know where you came from. Um, so here's your choice. You can fight our friend to the death because he has stolen from thieves. Even thieves don't like to be stolen from, it turns out. Um, and he's like, and because he stole from us, another group of thieves, uh, we're going to let you two fight. And the winner gets to then board our boat and become a pirate with us. Um, and he's like, well, what happens if I don't want to be a pirate? He's like, well, we kill you too. He's like, well, I think, I think pirate life sounds fine. Um, and so uh, in the midst of this fight, right, um, it's pretty quick, and this is a scene from it right here. So the fight took place. Edmund Dantes swung him on the ground, put the knife to him, and was like, don't move. And then he said, listen, here's the deal. Um, we're both good fighters. We're both great sailors. Instead of letting us die and let us both come your boat, you'll have two great pirates, two great sailors. And the, 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 the captain of the pirates, I don't know what you call him. He was like, sounds like a great idea. So now this guy's life has been saved by the only person who could save his life, Edmund Dantes, in this plea agreement. And then he says, you know, all my relatives, even the ones who don't feel so well, uh, I am your man forever, right? Is this because he feels a burden? No, it's because he feels... These feelings of indebtedness, these feelings of indebtedness, I am your man forever. They're two very different things. I want to remind you, were you saved? Who were you saved from? What were you saved from? We think often because of a culture we live in that talks about God as a God would never Right, God would never send so-and-so to hell. God would never remove us from, God would never, God is love. And because we're in a culture that kind of spouts that out so often, we kind of forget some of the things that took place and some of the things that are real. Like when we sin, we are rebelling against God. And if we're living as rebels to his kingdom, it doesn't make any sense for him to let us in. It just doesn't make any sense. Why would we think that would be the case? Our sin pulls us far away from God and it is necessary. We need God to intervene in our life for there to be any hope. One, to forgive us of our sins, of our acts of rebellion. And two, we need his spirit to empower us so we can live according to his ways. Have we forgotten how far we were from God? You know, this side of history, and really, true, truly, I don't think we experience it enough. And here's what I mean by that. Like we live in an area on this side of the death, burial, and resurrection. We have people who love God, desire to do his will, and are foreshadowing heaven to a lost world. So even those in the most lost state aren't dealing with their suffering, sufferings to the greatest extreme because the people who love God are trying to show love to them. And that's a great thing. That's a great thing. But it means we're not fully coming in contact with the lostness and what law, and like the, uh, the side effects of losses, like how desperate the world actually is outside of God. And it's because of this 
It's because of this, I think, that so many don't necessarily realize how lost they are or recognize what the rebellion to God does. Right now, the most clear picture, I think, to understand uh, our state outside of God is if we look at the imagery of Adam and Eve. Right? They're in God's graces. They're in the garden. They sin against God. They're taken out of the garden. God's domain here, them over there. And a matter of fact, the Bible talks about it in a lot of different ways. The way it explains uh, the state of humanity, it says things like um, separated from Christ, alienated from God's people, having no hope, strangers to God, earning death, children of wrath, living out the fantasies of our passions, sons and daughters of disobedience, following the prince of the air, enslaved. Ones who harp on weak and worthless principles, ungodly, unrighteousness, suppressors of truth, foolish, dark-hearted, arrogant. And the thing is, when we walk in those ways, we somehow still think that what we're doing is correct, what we're doing is okay, what we're doing is tolerable. And we don't recognize how lost we truly are, the vast separation between us and God. And what can bring us to God from that point? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It was only Jesus. Only Jesus. Who not only wanted to show up, but who could show up? Anyone else we wanted to call on was either just as lost for us or unable to help. It was only Jesus. So why? Why Jesus? There's just no one else. Why is Christianity the way to escape the fires of hell? Because it's real. Because it's what there is. Because Jesus is the one who stepped between us and our deserved punishment of our rebellious acts. There was no one else. There was no one else. John 14, 7 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. First uh, Timothy 2, uh, 2, 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12 says, that, uh, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among which by men and women must be saved. And whose name do we have salvation? Jesus. Whose name? In Jesus, in any other name? No, no other name. Only Jesus, that's right. We are debtors to what? We're debted to God, to live according to the Spirit, right? Not according to the flesh. When we talk about flesh, how, how do we understand that? You know, that's kind of an interesting concept to think of. Because in our normal language, do we talk about it like that regularly? Are we like... Going to avoid some flesh today? I mean, it's like weird talk, right? And so, uh, and, and so when we read this, we have to kind of understand what, what are they saying, right? According to the flesh, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, right? Flesh is like the desires to satisfy our urges. Um, and this goes into lots of different areas. It has to do with lust in some ways, and it even finds its way in our culture, like the foodie culture, right? What is the, perp- what is the idea of a foodie? to eat really good tasting food. Is this right? What are they doing but satisfying their flesh in some way? That's what it is. I mean, this is why, like the same concept to why gluttony is, was considered sin in, by the early church. It, we don't necessarily consider it that way today, but the early church considered gluttony a sin because it was just simply a desire to please the flesh. 
And so there's, there's all types of ways in which this, this comes about. Like, what does it look like to please the flesh, to live according to the flesh, right? I mean, murder, murder is simply that same thing, right? It's this, we don't like the world the way it is, so we're gonna remove someone so we might like it better, right? Again, pleasing the flesh, right? I mean, this is what it is. Why, why do we lie, right? Because our current circumstance is gonna put our flesh in a situation we don't lie like. And so we lie to get out of the situation of our flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? These urges, like almost every sin, if not every sin, can also be filled, filtered down into this idea of feeding the flesh or fulfilling the flesh. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 5, he says this, he says, uh, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, right? They're, they're self-evident, they're recognizable. He says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, uh, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, right? As in, those are not all of them. That's just a list of some examples of them. There are an infinite number of ways we can live according to the flesh. But the warning is this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because if you're living according to the flesh, you're not living according to God. You're living in open rebellion against his ways. And so this is not what we people do. His people seek to live like God, not according to our own urges, right? We are debtors, not to the flesh, because that leads to death, but to God, to God. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. This is an interesting phrase, right? Like, what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? I mean, that's what we want, right? Because if you're led by the Spirit of God, then you're sons of daughters of God, right? That's what we want. But that's like, what does that mean? Do we just sit there and wait? Are we waiting for a fire to come in front of us so we can follow? Like, what, is it, what does it mean? So we have, we have a situation in, uh, in, in Protestantism or in I guess since the Reformation where we naturally over-spiritualize the text. Um, and we do this because we think it makes it seem more holy in those ways. Um, and some of them make sense. Some of it doesn't. I'm going to give you kind of somewhat of an alternate understanding of some of this. Feel free to disagree with me. But I think at the very least, it's a pragmatic way to understand the text. I mean, it's going to be a way in which we can find an applicable way to live from it. Right now, there's, there's some culture here we're also missing. Um, and you're to, to being 2,000 years removed, when we say the word slavery, there is a very strong connotation that comes with it for us. And that makes sense, and it should, right? But for them, it was viewed differently in some ways, right? If you went to the market, you bought beans, you bought pottery, and you bought people. I mean, that was just the way it was. And people were often enslaved, uh, sometimes because they couldn't pay their debts, and because they couldn't pay a debt, they were then thrown into slavery. It had nothing to do with ethnicity. It had everything to do with the current circumstance. And then sometimes you were born into slavery. Your parents were slaves, and so you were born into slavery. Uh, and it was just a kind of a nature. If, you were, uh, if your parents passed away at your birth, then the options were for you to either be taken in by a family, if that wasn't the case. And then you were often either going to be thrown into a prostitute ring or you're going to be thrown into slavery. Those are just kind of the way that the, that was how society took care of many of the, uh, of maybe the unwanted kids, you might say. I know it's a sad way to say, I'm just trying to paint the picture so we understand what we're talking about here. But now it, it wasn't like if you were enslaved, that was the end of your life. There was still a chance 
And there's plenty of opportunities we see where people get out of slavery by their owners adopting them as sons or daughters. And one of the main themes we see behind this was if the slave themselves resembled the master, then they would be adopted as the son or daughter. So an example of this is uh, Pythagoras, a mathematician. He noticed one of his slaves was naturally good at math. So he tested him out. He kind of saw what he could do, trained him a little bit. And when he recognized his potential, he adopted him as his son. And this means he's no longer a slave. It means now he's going to receive inheritance. He's a part of that household, right? And we see, uh, we see there's other examples in, in ancient Greek history of this happening. That there's a man who is 60 years old serving as a slave before he gets adopted as a son. And, you know, there's lots of ways to understand, but the main things to understand the distinctions is slaves are not sons. But then when you're adopted, that you are a son. The son had certain privileges. The son could actually purchase items on the father's credit. Does that make sense? He could buy land. He could buy animals. He can do things like that with the promise that the father was going to pay. The slave could not. This is kind of a big deal because the, so the master then wanted people, if he was going to adopt someone, he wanted to make sure they were going to carry his name. They would think like he thought. They would do things like he would do things. And say so if they saw those attributes in them, then it would make them likely to be one that could be adopted as a son. And there's, there's other stories where a father doesn't adopt their bio, or doesn't call their biological son son, but calls a slave son. Because the slave thought more like the master than the biological son did. And then in that situation, the son or the adopted son gets to make decisions, right? Like this, it's interesting, right? Like if you had the attitude of the master, then you could become the son. And that was kind of how they understood sonship and how they understood slavery. This was this contrast. And we don't, I'm guessing most of us probably didn't read that into when we read that. Is that right? Yeah. And so it makes it interesting because it opens up some areas of understanding here. It changes everything kind of about how we were to read this. Um, when you look in your Bible and you see a capital S, what do you, what do you think? It's got to be the Holy Spirit, right? Like that's the natural thought. Capital S must mean Holy Spirit. But in the original Greek, it was all uppercase letters, so there was no distinction. And so uh, it was like the only way to know if it's going to be Holy Spirit or some other way to translate the word spirit was the context, and this is, this is important. This is a little tricky as well. Um, and so anytime you see a capital S, know that that is a interpretation by the translators. That's just, just good knowledge to have about that. Um, sometimes it's very clear, right? It says hagias, holy, and then spirit. So you know it's Holy Spirit. Other times it doesn't say that, right? It just says spirit. So spirit, very similar to the English, has ways it could be understood. Spirit can mean breath. It can also mean attitude. If you say someone has a spirit of joyfulness, what does that mean? They have an attitude of joyfulness. Or if they have a spirit of fear, it means in that situation they're scared, right? And so it could be understood in that same way. And so in some of this language, when it says for those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, well, in the idea of sonship, then it kind of seems like it's talking about those who are led by an attitude of God or those who have an attitude of God are sons of God. Is that making some sense? I think that makes a lot more sense or is easy to understand than if you think about it as Holy Spirit. Um, and, and really, verse, uh, verse 15, I think, makes this the most clear. Um, if you, do we have that on the screen? I don't know if we do or not. Anyway, no worries. Uh, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, right? Spirit 
And if you look in your translation, it's gonna be a lowercase s. So they decided there it was not the Holy Spirit. Um, but you, you received a spirit of adoption as sons, right? And it's got an uppercase s. All of a sudden it says the Holy Spirit. Um, for we cry out, Abba, Father. So it makes more sense to me, especially in verse 15, that it's referring to an attitude of slavery or an attitude of son. Does that make sense? As opposed to the Holy Spirit, because then you have to use the same holy for both. It doesn't make sense with slavery at all. Anyway, I'm using all that to try to illustrate this point um, that our objective to be sons of God are to live like the master, to, to change, to become holy, right? The Holy Spirit certainly is involved. I'm not denying that at all. A matter of fact, his, main, his primary work in us is to make us holy. Uh, but we, when we read this and it looks a little convoluted because we over-spiritualize it, I think that gives us some discredit to the text as well. Have you guys, uh, anybody own their own business? Right? Is it hard to find somebody that will work as hard for your business as you will? Yeah, it's just the way it is, right? I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. I, I've worked, I've worked with, uh, worked, I remember I was, uh, when I was in Bible college, I was going working construction in the summertime. And I remember it depended on what type of job my boss got on how hard I was allowed to work. Does that sound silly, right? Like if he was contracted out by the hour, he was like, Brian, slow down. But if he was the primary person, said, hey, we have, we're getting paid this much to finish this roof, he was like, Brian, work fast. Because he knew he was going to make more money off of it, right? And that, that was just kind of how it, it is, right? And so it's hard. And so the thing is, when you're a slave, you don't own it. But when you're a son, you own it. When you're a son, you have inheritance. When you're a son, it's a part of it. Like, we don't go to church uh, because we're going to church. We go to church because we're a part of the church, because we are the church. Because this is our work as well. And so there's a difference in how we understand sonship and how we understand slavery. There's a difference between having a spirit of fear and doing something because we feel a burden and doing something because we have feelings of indebtedness. Because the only one who could save us did save us. And the only hope we have is because of the one who saved us. Adopted sons are grateful to be saved. There is a... There is, you know, as we reflect on this, we should, we should feel this, 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 this strong sense of indebtedness in order to work for God. Verse 16 says, the spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And it sounds great to be heir of heir with Christ and God. It doesn't sound so great to suffer. What does it look like to suffer in Christ? What does it look like to suffer? And I think, I think honestly, it comes down to the way we saw with Jesus. Jesus living like a son of God in a fallen world. And the natural consequences of that was suffering. And if we are also living as sons and daughters of God in a fallen world, which I think we would all say is very clear that is the case, then we should also come across some natural sufferings that take place when those two things collide. There are obviously going to be things that we need to stand up for. There are going to be things we need to speak up against. There are going to be stances we have to take, and we're going to have to be bold and courageous. 
And there is gonna be a natural suffering that takes place. But if we also, as Jesus did, stand up against these things, then we too will be glorified with them. Uh, Can I go ahead and have the band come forward? No, it's interesting, as heirs, uh, we see Jesus kind of restoring things to the way they were. If we think of Adam in the garden, what was one of the things he did? Well, he named all the animals. What is that a sign of? That's a sign of ownership. It's a sign of, uh, of, uh, of the inheritance, of belonging, right? Uh, and, and this is something that we see again, that again, as we, we leave this rebellious state and move into this position of being a son and daughter of God, we move back into the restored kind of authority, heirship, inheritance that we once had with God, that humanity once had with God. It's a beautiful thing to kind of see that restoring uh, come to bow, but it only takes place as we share in his suffering. You know, it makes sense that some people come to Christ out of fear. Uh, and the reason it makes sense of that is because hell is a scary thing, right? I mean, like when it talks about being separated from God, it talks about it in a very scary way, right? So it makes sense that some people choose to come to God because of fear. My hope and my encouragement is that that does not become the sole reason why. That you will, you, will, you will recognize your sonship. You'll recognize your daughtership. You'll recognize that you are a child of God and that you have an inheritance with God. And that means that you are looking for opportunities, right? The one, the one who comes for fear does the bare minimum not to die. You know what I mean? But the one who belongs to God, who comes as a son and daughter, that person is looking for ways to serve and get involved. They're working like they own the business. Are you understanding what I'm saying? It's a different mindset. It's a different way to live. They're looking for ways to serve. And this is what we want from the church. I'm sure there are plenty of ways to serve here. Is this true? Plenty of ways. And the sons and daughters are looking for those opportunities and taking advantages of them. And that is the hope we find in Romans 8. That we are a group of people that belong. We are God's people living and he is partnering with us in his mission. We're not just going out to tell people about church. We're going to invite them into our house because our house is also belonging to God's house. Are you following? And this is the hope that we have, right? Like I've got kids, right? I've got a three-year-old named Elias. He's actually back there. And I get to change his diapers. I mean, I have to change his diapers, right? Because if I don't, I'll go to jail. But I also get to change his diapers, I get to change him because he's my son. And I, I mean, I could not change him, but then I wouldn't have a son. But I've got a son, and so I get to change his diapers. And we, we are sons and daughters of God, and so we, we have to come to church, right? There's scripture on church, Hebrews 10. Uh, Hebrews 10, it says, it says, do not forsake the assembling of the saints, right? We have a proof text there. But we also get to come to church because we're partnering with God's people to do his work. The only thing that actually has any significance in the world Right, We get to serve God. We get to work with God. We get to partner with the creator of all things to push forth his will into a lost and dying and fallen world in hopes that we can lift it up and give us some sort of hope and foreshadowing of heaven. We get to serve God. Hey, let's pray. My God, my Father, we thank you. You're so good to us all the time. And as we further understand what it looks like to be a son and daughter of yours, as we understand what it looks like to demonstrate an attitude of yours, that we can better resemble you in holiness, my God. My God, we ask that you will give us, you will strengthen us, you will empower us to do this more so, that you will fight against our flesh, that you will 
lead us away from temptation and our natural desires to only do our will and that we could just be solely sold out for you, seeking your kingdom, seeking your will in all of our actions, all of our motivation. My God, bless this church, bless their work here in this community. As they go to work, as they go to school, wherever they are, wherever they go, they can demonstrate your, your love, your holiness, and be a great example to this lost world of what they need. My God, we thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent him on the cross for us and that we can breathe because of him. We pray this in his name, amen.